0: Those who do not insist on their values and remain prepared to defend them by force will have to accept the values of others. Titus Gebel. Hello everyone. This is uh, episode 28 of Citadelium. Uh I guess long awaited because I haven't recorded in a couple of weeks. But uh, today is a special episode because we do have our uh, first guest on uh, the podcast uh, Citadelium is now uh is now inviting guests uh, to participate in the discussion about uh, citadels uh, around the world and uh, I'm really happy to uh, have our first guest uh, today. Uh Francisco Litvai, who is uh, COO at uh, Tipolis. Uh, it is a company that designs, builds, and advises on next generation free economic zones. Uh, you may have heard of some of their projects. Uh, and essentially, uh, it started uh, as uh, uh, a project called Free Private Cities, and uh T-Police is now a for-profit arm of this project, as, uh, if I'm uh, not mistaken. So, uh, also, Francisco is a uh, uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, other companies like SETI and uh, Atlantic uh, Pacific Strategies, and uh, the... Uh, basically has been doing uh, uh, research on next generation uh, free economic zones and uh, governance structures uh, since uh, 2018 and I'm really happy to have him on my podcast uh, hey Francisco how are you
1: hey Yuri I'm great thank you a lot for, for having me on it's, it's a pleasure to be here
0: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming. Uh, I know that uh, everybody's time is uh, scarce these days. There's so much work going on around the world. There's uh, a lot of uh, work uh, specifically in terms of citadels. Everybody's trying to build something. And I'm really happy to see that because uh, so far... Uh, well, for the past couple of years, people have been theorizing about citadels. You know, uh, I personally have uh, written some articles and uh, uh, I recorded uh, some uh, citadelium episodes about this topic. And it's uh, really interesting to, you know, build uh, what's called the uh, s- citadel theory. But it's also really exciting to see practice uh, showing up on my feeds uh, uh, on the internet, uh, people actually build things right now, and that's what I want to focus on going forward: is uh, how we're uh, actually building citadels. And uh, as uh, you may know from my podcast uh, and my articles, citadels can be absolutely uh, anything you, that you want them to be—from uh, you know your personal residence to, uh, in a in uh, your country of origin to uh, a whole uh, city out there. And uh, today we're starting with a pretty. Advanced uh, way of building citadels, uh, which is uh, what uh, Francisco is engaged in, um, uh, free private uh, cities uh, project. But first, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how uh, how did you get interested in governance systems? Uh, what uh, got you interested in that?
1: Well, I originally got interested in Austrian economics and you know libertarianism, free markets, all of that. When I was in high school, I started reading you know, Mises, uh, Hayek, some Rothbard, and I started getting really interested into how the private sector could deliver you know, what we call like public goods, you know, and provide government services. So I started, you know, looking more into that field and seeing if there were historical examples or initiatives being done nowadays. Um, in which the private sector was taking functions which are usually considered to be something that only the state can do, right? And I eventually found a Facebook group called Cidades Empresariais. Uh, it's called uh, Entrepreneurial Cities in English. Uh, I'm Brazilian, so it's a, it's a group in Portuguese. There's a big libertarian movement in Brazil, by the way. But So in this group, they started talking about all these new projects and books and, and so on. Uh, I started reading a couple of the, the main works in that field, so Your Next Government by Tom Bell is a great one. And also the book Free Private Cities by Titus Gable. Um, I got really into it. It was something I, I think very interested and I started following you know, all the news on, on that space. Eventually, I saw that Titus posted a job posting for Free Private Cities, right? he was looking for an assistant over there. I applied, got the job, and have been working on the field ever since.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good story. And uh, I actually had a question uh, for how you got into this uh, and how you met uh, Titus as well. Uh, yeah, great that you covered it right now. Actually, it seems pretty straightforward. You saw how this thing, uh, how Titus uh, started the project, how he started developing it, and uh, you just decided to apply, and uh, here you are. Uh, that was in 2018 or 19. Uh, yeah, 2018. It's hmm.
1: I guess two two and a half years already. Um, there's been a lot of news in the space and and also at Freebird City since then. But yeah, I've been I've been in this field ever since.
0: Okay. Well, then um, let me just uh, uh, go a little bit. Uh, uh, away from the citadels themselves but i think it's also important to uh ask these questions because uh, for people who are uh, planning to establish their citadels uh, uh especially maybe not in their uh, homeland so uh what is your homeland is this brazil uh where uh what is your view of the term homeland do you feel like when you're not in brazil and as far as i know right now you're not uh, uh do you feel like you miss uh, something uh, when you're not in your country of origin? How do you feel being outside of it?
1: Yeah, so for context, I've been living outside of Brazil for four years now. First in Austria, I was doing my studies there. And this year, I've become a nomad. I've been spending some months in Portugal. And how I define the term homeland? Um, that is a pretty good question. I think. First of all, you you can think of this in in layers, right? So in one sense, like I am from this city where I was born, and I have my friends and I have my family. Um, but I'm also a Southern Brazilian. You know, there's a region with its unique culture and unique you know history. Uh, and then you know, broader, I'm a Brazilian, and then in a broader layer, I'm a you know part of the Lusosphere, like this community of countries with this shared history and shared language and then on an even broader sphere like i'm a i'm a human being but, you know at that point it's already so generic and so detached let's say from any real commitments so i i think that's you, you can define that in, in the terms of layers but also it's very context specific how one would define uh, homeland because let's let's take the example of the of the losers sphere for example um, you know it's a community of countries which are not really bound by geography, but they're bound by, you know, like a shared language, a shared religion, like a shared set of values uh, and a shared history, right? Some other cultures don't really have that, this universalist um, aspect of them that like, they are mo- much more geography bound, right? Some, some cultures, it doesn't really matter where you were born, But you're still, you know, someone who is part of this lusosphere or is part of the, you know, an Anglo or, or something like that. Whereas some cultures are much more, you know, attached to a place like I would say some of the Eastern European cultures.
0: Yeah, and I guess uh, it also has to do a little bit with what we um, and uh, some people who cover citadels uh, talk about when they talk about uh, digital countries, because uh, it's it's a similar concept that uh, you're not really bound geographically. If uh, you know, if I wanted to set up a, set up a digital country that is uh, that attracts people based on interests and shared values rather than their ge- geographical attachment then that what that's uh, what it exactly is right so um i think uh, i think it rings a bell to many people uh here and uh, also uh, people who practice uh, what you just described uh, which is a uh, digital nomadism so um my question to you is what what do you think of digital nomadism do you think it's uh, actually uh sustainable uh, way of life or do you think it's uh, something that's, uh, uh, that's uh, really interesting to uh, people who are young right now and uh, who can afford to you know, work remotely but then at some point uh, there comes a time when they just need to settle down
1: yeah more of the latter opinion so I currently am a nomad but I don't think I will be for my life because well, I do want to have children and I do want to you know, build a family. And for that, it's it's much harder if you're traveling all the time, if you're not bound to a place. But I think it's a very, very good tool, a very good mode of life for discovering places where one would live or even, you know, setting more than one base, right? Part of this whole idea of free private cities is that you have competition for citizens, right? That your the jurisdictions are competing for... New businesses and new people to work there, and new people to live there. If people are a hundred percent attached to where they live and they wouldn't like go away for for anything in the world, then it doesn't really matter how good your jurisdiction is because no one will really come. Right. So the more mobile people are, the more the easier it is to go somewhere else and, and get established there. The easier it will be for these competitive pressures to apply at a governance level, right? For for the more well governed countries or well governed cities to get more prosper, more prosperous. So, I I think there is value in being somewhat mobile. But I, I don't think you necessarily need to be a, a nomad who has zero roots, right? I think you can use nomadism to discover places where you would like to build roots, and then you, you pick a couple of them, let's say like instead of having all of your life in one country, you have you know, your life divided into two or three countries where you, that you really like, or that you really share the values of you know, those peoples, and I think that is a much more anti-fragile way of life. Right, that having a couple of bases where okay, if the U.S. collapses, then I know that I still can, you know, live in Brazil. I know how to live with this culture, and I already am established here. So it serves as kind of an insurance, right? I think that is a that is one of the advantages of, of trying out nomadism at least for a while.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I I think you uh, actually touched upon an important point here and uh, what some people call uh, flag theory, which means that uh, you have uh, uh, several flags or poles that uh, uh, kind of describe uh, several domains of your life that you can actually... Um, make a little more sovereign these domains of life. And one of those is uh, having, uh, maybe having a couple of uh, citizenships in other countries and a couple of residences. And for that, of course, uh, you would probably need to travel first and, uh, you know, there's so much um, information out there, there's so many blogs, but none of these blogs, none of these uh, YouTube videos and feedbacks and uh, reviews of any of those places will uh, do those places uh, justice until you actually visit them and see life in those places for yourself. And the the only way to do that is obviously to spend some time on the road. So, uh, and uh, the flag theory says that you know once you have uh, understood which places you like, maybe you should pursue uh, uh, you know getting a passport or at least a permanent residency in those places so that uh, yes, you can spend most of your time and actually live in one place uh, with your family and just have a permanent home. but in case something bad happens and uh, we can never predict that something, Uh, bad happen but it can uh, and history shows that it can Uh, in case a black swan event happens you can uh, get out of where you are and you have a a safe harbor you have a secondary place uh, where you can stay i think it's very important to understand for many people and even if you are uh, extremely patriotically inclined and uh, I know some people like that and I don't have anything you know against such patriotism I just uh, uh think that from practical uh from a practical perspective uh, uh your you know your patriotism can uh uh, play a smaller role if some things, uh, some some things that are completely outside of your control or the control of anybody in your country happen, right? And that's why you should have a secondary place where you can. Um, I don't like the word escape, but at least uh, you know enjoy that uh, place when uh, things go sour in um, in your place of residence. So, well, let's get into the uh, actual uh, crux of the matter. The uh, free private cities project, free private cities themselves. Uh, Can you please describe uh, uh, to the people who are new to this concept, in short, what free private cities are and how they are different from um, uh, regular cities and how they are different from what we normally have and call as uh, free economic zones or free administrative zones?
1: Okay, so what is a free private city, right? A free private city is a jurisdiction that has a different regulatory, legal, economic system from the rest of its surrounding areas, right? So it's a special jurisdiction inside a country. And that jurisdiction is run, it's operated, it's developed by a private company, which provides governance as a service. Basically, you have a real contract with this company as a citizen, and there it's defined you know, how much you must pay for for the governance services, and there it's also laid out the, you know, the rights that you have as a citizen. And that's pretty much the base of the, the idea. What's the difference to regular systems? Um, first of all, you have a real contract, right? You have something that you can take to independent arbitration, and you're in a completely different relationship than what you have in a normal state, right? When you're under a constitution, where you're a subject, and they can just change the laws at, at their whims, and you know you, you don't have a say in it. Whereas on a on a contract, if the operator decides to change something substantial in the contract and you didn't agree to, you can sue him for damages. Um, that is a base difference. Uh, from the free private cities model to the traditional models, and it's something that provides a lot more stability. Um, what else besides that? You also have the incentives, right? So there is a big incentives difference when you're you're a private community, uh, and this is something very similar to what Hoppe says, right, in his uh, Democracy the God that Failed, that you know the monarch because he's the owner of a country, let's say, he has this long term incentive to not. Um, you know exploit the country too much that its capital value would decline um, it's it's a similar thing when in a free private city right you have the the city that is getting revenue from its citizens right so it wants to get as much revenue as possible but it won't um, you know, raise the fees too high uh, or lower the, the service quality to a point where the current revenue it will get will be at the expense of the future value of the city, right? It's, they won't try to gain this present revenue at the expense of, you know, future future capital value of the city. So it's it's a model that has a, an incentive to think of the short term, but also the long term. And that's something that is lacking in current democratic systems. Right? You don't have this long term incentive. You have the short term one, which is the election cycle, but no one is economically incentivized to think
0: on the long term. Exactly. Low time preference. And that's the famous and uh, favorite term that Bitcoiners use these days uh, to uh, signify your care for the future. Right. So you really care what happens in the future instead of just living day by day and uh, spending as much as you can, consuming as much as you can and destroying everything you see. While doing that, I think uh, it's a it's a really powerful concept. Actually, popularized by uh, Saeed Moose in his book *The Bitcoin Standard*, but uh, I can also uh, I can also see how uh, uh, Titus Goebbels' book *Free Private Cities* was uh, highly influenced by uh, Austrian economists, especially uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, and uh, the book that you mentioned, *Democracy: uh, A God That Failed*. Uh, I really enjoyed that book, and when um, After that, I read uh, Titus Goebbels' book. Uh, I clearly saw how uh, he was influenced by uh, Austrian economists like uh, Hoppe. So he decided to actually expand on the topic and uh, uh, provide uh, an actual solution to the problem uh, described in Democracy, a God that Failed. Uh, Because uh, uh, if you read the book, which I highly recommend, uh, Hoppe talks about how uh, monarchy is actually much better than democracy, but not perfect, not just uh, yet uh, uh, perfect enough for us to call ourselves anarcho-capitalists. And uh, the the way that he sees his type of, um, uh, or his way of uh, doing monarchy is essentially more of uh, what uh, Titus explains in Free Private Cities, which is a privately run uh, city or little you can call it a kingdom you can call it a principality it doesn't really matter as long as uh, the uh, the the one premise is uh, clear that citizens of this place uh, of this citadel are more like clients rather than uh, the rather than sheep that you farm uh, and that's what happens in nation states of today um, and uh, I really love the concept and uh, after I read the uh, Titus's book, uh, I, I really uh, started thinking that uh, this, uh, was, uh, and, uh, this was possible and this was the way to go. And uh, I got interested in the project itself and uh, sure... I uh, started following the blog, and I realized that uh, there are actual tangible results uh, coming from this project. Just out of, just just a couple of years after the project started, uh, there was uh, uh, already an announcement that they were working, or they are you, you guys were working on um, on a, a project uh, somewhere in a warm place that you didn't really announce first. But then uh, we. Got the news, and that news was about the uh, uh, ZEDEs or ZEDES uh, or Special Economic Zones in uh, Honduras. And there's a couple of them right now. Uh, the first one that I, I would like to talk about is uh, Prospera on the island of uh, Roatan in Honduras. So I, I got really excited about this because it's, uh, it's a real place that is being built uh, uh, on the basis of uh, the Free Private Cities project. And uh, I guess. Uh, we can safely call it the most innovative uh, uh, free economic zone in the world right now. So, uh, Francisco, what is so different about uh, the Prospera ZED, uh, and uh, uh, how 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 do you think it is? Uh, more attractive than other free economic zones that exist in the world right now, because uh, there are quite f- quite a few of them in the world, but this one seems to be really out there. This one really seems to be innovating. In what way?
1: Also, well, the the Zetes in Honduras, so the term means, uh, employment and economic development zones, are one of the most advanced special economic zone regimes in the world in the sense of autonomy given to these zones to try out new slash better models, right? For governance, for dispute resolution, for just operations, all of it. Um, The Zedis have, for example, the autonomy to select their own legal system. They can define pretty much all of the rules besides criminal law. So criminal law is still under the... Jurisprudence of Honduras, you still need to keep Honduran criminal law, but for all things civil, business related, family related, you can define your own system, right? And Prospera selected a common law framework based on American common law. Um, They created their own Roten Common Law Code, which is a simplified version of American common law and also incorporating some best practice elements from many jurisdictions around the world. But... They also give you the the opportunity in Prosper to choose the legal system of any country in the OECD to do business, right? So it's a you really have a a lot of choice, right? You can select whichever model fits best for you, and then you can run your business based on that model. And have in case there are any disputes, it can then be resolved in their private arbitration center that they also have. So. Prosper has the Prosper Arbitration Center, where disputes automatically go to, unless you know someone decides to pick a different uh, arbitration panel or you know organization to to do the arbitration. And insofar you have the, this autonomy to choose the governance framework that you're in, you also have the dispute resolution element where they have their own arbitration center they have their own independent judges uh, so're not they're not dependent on the Honduran judges Honduran courts which are not you know, famous for being um, super efficient and and so on and besides that, they also have a very efficient model for operations which is following the Sandy Springs model in Georgia right for delivering public services through private contractors issuing these requests for proposals. And then some private contractor can say, Hey, I want to do the security and prosper. They have this selection process. And if at any point they define that, okay, this guy is not delivering the services as promised. They can unilaterally cancel the contract and immediately look for someone else. So they have um, private security. They have, Private everything, basically, except for, for the whole outside, uh, how do you say, like interaction with the outside world, which is still under Honduras. So, you know, like foreign relations and the military and, and all these things are not under Prosper because they're not an independent, a sovereign um, jurisdiction, right? They're a special zone inside Honduras. So, everything internal, you know, for their own internal governance. Uh, policing, security, infrastructure, that's in their, in their reach, that's in the grasp, that's something they can do. And for everything that's outside, so border control, uh, foreign relations, that remains with Honduras.
0: Yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's really interesting to see because uh, right now, you know, especially with the uh, COVID situation, I guess, uh, um, the uh, the island of Rotan Prospera, they weren't really able to to have their own dictate in uh, you know in terms of what happens right uh, they they had to follow uh the honduran law and uh, uh, regulations uh, when it comes to uh you know things like uh mass mandates or lockdowns or any of that stuff right because uh, this is uh, outside of their jurisdiction
1: Well, the thing is currently there isn't Anyone really living in Prosper? They only have an office building for their own team, um, but there's not a city built there yet, right? They're they're still um, working on, on building new housing for people to move into Prosper. So even if they did uh, try out something different for for COVID, there wouldn't be anyone to for it to be applied to, you know. Um, all the ZEti projects are still under construction, right? You don't have uh, real cities. You already have the jurisdiction. You already have the legal systems, but not the the residents and the tenants. And that's the next step for this year, right? That's that's what they wanna. By the end of this year, already starting to get the first e-residents, the first companies operating, and the first uh, people living there full time.
0: Well, nevertheless, it's a great uh, first step uh, towards uh, fully autonomous uh, citadels. Uh, And, of course, as Bitcoiners, we kind of think uh, long into the future and we dream of this world of tens of thousands of uh, uh, fully sovereign citadels. But uh, you can't get uh, everything right away, of course, and you have to start somewhere. And I think uh, the uh, Prospera uh, project is a really good place to start. Um, What would you you answer to someone who says uh, things like, well, you know, it's not truly autonomous, it's not truly... Sovereign and uh, Honduras uh, can just uh, take over at any time they want. Uh, you know, like like some other uh, larger countries uh, happen to take over their smaller, uh, more independent regions, uh, right? So, uh, what's the answer to that? I mean,
1: I don't think you can ever give a definitive answer
0: because it's something that will always be,
1: you know, it will always be a threat that this jurisdiction is taken back, uh, but. There are a lot of things you can do to try to secure yourself and to make the incentives aligned so that there is no no problem with the host country. So in terms of protection, there, the solution in this case is to have the operating company in the U.S. and Honduras, as a signatory of the New York Convention, accepts these international arbitral awards. So if Honduras expropriates the, the property of the, of the operating company, which is based in the U.S., and it's deemed, you know, in international courts that Honduras, you know, is, is guilty of that, then every country in the world can expropriate Honduran property in their jurisdiction, right? So it's it's something that would bring a big economic cost for Honduras. Um, in Honduras, also, the Zedis are not a law. They were passed as a constitutional amendment. So that means that to undo them, they would need a... Full majority, right? A qualified majority, which is two thirds of the votes in in parliament. So that's much harder normally than a simple majority of fifty one percent. And then you also have the the incentives part, right? So the Zedis are they're creating jobs, they're attracting international investors, they're doing all these things, and they're also giving fifteen to seventeen percent. Um, probably it's it's around that that value. Uh, but around 15% of their of the money they earn, the Zedis, is going directly to Honduras, to these funds that are developing infrastructure and being used also to, to fund education. So part of the revenue of the Zedis is going towards developing Honduras as a whole, and not only the Zedis. So you know they have an incentive to actually treat the Zedis well, because they want more of that money uh, to develop the whole country.
0: So do I understand it correctly that uh, as a as a resident of uh, Prospera you'll be uh, you will have to pay a fee like an annual fee for example a residency fee uh, and that is essentially the revenue of, of the uh, Prospera project but at the same time they will also uh, uh, take in some uh, uh, taxes on businesses so if you run you know a coffee shop or whatever you'll have to pay a corporate tax uh, which is going to be. Much smaller than in many other jurisdictions, of course, but nevertheless, there's a corporate tax. So that revenue uh, goes to uh, Prospera uh, or rather the managing company behind Prospera. And then from that revenue, the managing company pays the uh, 15 or whatever percent uh, uh, to the Honduras uh, government as their fee to, you know, to... To do what they wish uh, to do with that, basically contributing to the budget. Is that the flow of money?
1: That is the flow of money, and you know, uh, one of the points that one has to take into account is that in these first projects, you have to give concessions, right? You have, you're still operating in the real world, and in the real world, there are problems when you are a tax haven, right? Other countries blacklist you, and Prosper didn't want to get blacklisted, so they included some taxes. Uh, like a 5%, 5% VAT tax, uh value-added tax, a 10% tax on presumed income sourced within Prospera, and also a land tax. So that way they're not a uh, blacklisted jurisdiction and then you know more countries can do business with them. But it's still much, much lower than the great majority of countries in the world and, and the majority of Western states where you have like this more solid governance.
0: Uh, and for people who want to, let's say they really like the idea, the project itself, and they want to move to uh, Prospera and open their business there and maybe build a house or buy a, a house that is being built right now, um, are they getting a, a residency permit uh, specifically for Prospera or the island of Rotan, or is it going to be a general uh, Honduran uh, residency permit?
1: Now, these these things are separated, right? So you have to be able to... Uh, first of all, you have to be able to get into Honduras to get to prosper, right? Uh, so if you're someone who would not be able to get into Honduras as a country, you won't be able to physically get to prosper, right? So if, I don't know, you're... A terrorist that Honduras doesn't want in, then forget it, you're not getting in. Um, and then also there is Prosper itself, so you have to sign a contract with them. There are different kinds of contracts, and you can check that on the website. There is like a, a contract for e-residents. There is a contract for you know workers. There is a contract for people who want to become real residents there. And then you're only going to be able to live in Prosper if you know they you sign the contract and they accept you. So, for example, as an e-resident, and if you apply there and they accept it as an e-resident, you get thirty days a year to live in, to stay in Prosper, right, to take care of your business and whatever. And so, it's it's something that depends on them approving you and you signing and the contract and paying the, the corresponding fees.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting model. Um, like I said, we are seeing the emergence of uh, the first uh, free. Uh, private cities and uh, it may not be 100% free as some people would like it to be but it's definitely a step in the right direction and uh, as far as I know there's also another uh, zedi uh, project in uh, Hondur- uh, Honduras as well called uh, the city of uh, Murazan. Uh, this city is inland so it's not an island and um, uh, is it the same as a Prospera? Is the concept completely the same or are there any differences between these two?
1: There are actually many differences between the two. So Prospera is more focused towards tourism and services, right? They they actually have their own company called Prospera Hiring Solutions, where they are trying to you know provide services to outside companies from Honduras working in Prospera. Whereas Morazon has a more industrial focus. So they are already you know creating these warehouses and uh, trying to attract more industrial tenants. The main value proposition of morazan is really providing security to the residents and like a good level of infrastructure, whereas Prospera is focusing a bit more on attracting tourists and also getting their e-residency program up and running. Right? So, uh, for example... Just on the, on the matter of objectives and what each project is doing, uh, Prospera is just putting a lot of effort into launching their e-residency program so they can start having you know business people worldwide establish their businesses in Prospera, but they don't have as much housing being built yet. Whereas Morazan is already you know, finishing their, their big warehouses where they're going to house their industrial tenants, and the first apartments where the workers will be able to live should already be done this month. Right, So they're really focusing on... Getting these intensive um, industrial labor running, whereas Prosper has this whole you know services tourism focus.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent, and I guess uh, it also is a great experiment to see which model will uh, work best. And uh, maybe uh, maybe these two models are just uh, meant to be uh, different because one is an island, one is beautiful, great for tourism. The other one is inland and uh, uh, probably in an area that uh, requires more uh, more production of stuff. So that's why they uh, focus on uh, on our production and on different types of labor there. Um, so uh, I do know that there are also similar projects uh, in other countries in the world. Uh, if you had to mention a couple more that may or may not be related to free private cities, uh, what would be your favorite projects?
1: I mean, so first of all, it's, it's worth mentioning Honduras as a whole. Uh, there are other groups now trying to get their own Zedis running or trying to incorporate uh, territories that they own to the ZETI. So the ZETI law has this really interesting um, article which allows any landowner to try to annex their land to an existing ZETI or just create their own ZETI, right? So it doesn't even have to be in neighboring land. So let's say you want to uh, you buy some land in the south of the country and then you want to annex it to the Prosper ZETI. If Prosper accepts it, like you make a requirement and they accept it, then that can become part of the prosperous Zeti as well and have its own, like, have the same legal system. So you already have groups that are trying this, like trying to you know, acquire land in different parts of the country and make it a Zeti or make it part of an existing Zeti. And in terms of private cities, you have a lot of projects across the world, but what most of these projects lack is this legal autonomy part, right? So, for example, in Brazil, the country I'm from, you have, I don't know, like more than four or five private city projects, like full-fledged cities, right? I'm talking about big real estate developments, but their main value add is, you know, this uh, walkability, new urbanism, smart city stack, but not the, you know, better place of doing business tech simply because they don't have the autonomy. So, I can I can name a couple of these projects, which are very interesting, as a, an example of the private sector developing a city and providing governance services. So, you have Urbita, which is a satellite city to Brasilia. You have Cidade Pedra Branca, which is in the south. You have some some cities in the northeast. You have some in Africa, uh, like Mkwashi, which is a satellite city to, um, in in Zambia to the capital. And you also have some other cities in, in Central Africa and West Africa being built by Rendever and these other big real estate developers. Some of these are inside free trade zones. Some of these have free trade zone status themselves. But it's not this autonomy that we are looking for. It's more like, you know, custom duties and some tax exemptions and some regulatory exemptions, but not the freedom to select the legal system that you're living in,
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's exactly why uh, the Honduras cities are called the most advanced uh, administrative and economic uh, zones out there. So where where is Francisco's personal citadel going to be? <laughs> do you have plans to move to one of these cities or maybe to one of the other uh, free private cities in the world? Or do you have a plan maybe to build your own uh, based on all this valuable experience that you're getting?
1: I mean, I would love if there were to be a free private city in in some of the Portuguese-speaking countries, right? I would love a free private city in in Brazil or in Portugal or, or any other Portuguese-speaking country, for that matter. Um, if there is any, at some point, I, I might move. At this point, I don't consider moving to to Rotan or or Morazan. But this is more of a personal issue, right? I, I I just wouldn't move to Honduras at this point. But I mean, if, if they start, um, you know, attracting a lot of people and, you know, the housing looks nice and everything seems to be going well, I, I would consider moving at some point. Um, there are some things which worry me about Honduras, like the hurricane situation. I would rather not be in a country that has like this uh, natural disaster risk. But that is something that, you know, every person must choose, right? they uh, hundred factors that one could count in such a such a moving decision like culture like food like um, you know natural disaster risk climate and you can't uh, reduce it only to these you know like taxes and, and property rights that is something that is really important but you know it's your whole life that you're you're trying to choose you're like where you're going to be based it can't be just because you're going to pay five percent less taxes it has to be you know something substantial
0: Exactly. I, I think it's always about uh, trade-offs here, and um, uh, there are many uh, different offshore jurisdictions where you pay absolutely no tax, like zero tax, uh, and um, the 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 thing with those jurisdictions is that you still have to be present uh, most of the year in those jurisdictions, and uh, uh, sometimes, yes, if they look nice on pictures, uh, they look nice on videos, but uh, personally, I uh, you know, I have this type of character that would get tired of being uh, in such an environment all the time. I would only consider it for a vacation. It can be a two-week or one-month vacation, but probably no more. And um, it just doesn't let you work sometimes, right? Plus, as you mentioned, there can be these uh, uh, weather uh, related risks. Uh, and uh, maybe you just don't, the population doesn't grow on you, right? Maybe the cultures are too different that you don't want to be there anymore. I know some people who have lived in uh, some um, Asian, Southeast Asian uh, countries for quite a few years already, and they're really tired of it. They they want to get out. They just don't know where to go. Uh, and the move is going to be uh you know a a really big decision for them uh so you know they're still thinking whether they should go back to uh where they came from or maybe try a new place again uh, which uh, can be a pain uh and will probably force them to be a digital nomad for uh, another year or two so i completely understand all these reservations and uh, i do hope that uh, you know at some point uh someone or maybe even you yourself uh, will get uh, enough resources to start building an actual free private city in Brazil or any other Portuguese-speaking country. So you can actually be where you love being uh, among the people that you love and, uh, you know, enjoy these uh, new conditions uh, uh, together with them, uh, you know, maybe invite some of the people that you love to those free private cities and enjoy the shared, uh, the, a new life, uh, life of uh, shared values and uh, maybe a little bit uh, uh, segregated and further away from the people that you dislike. <laughs> but uh, such is life and uh, we have to make these uh, choices. Uh, so uh, again, thanks uh, for joining. Thanks for uh uh contributing your time to the podcast it was a really interesting discussion uh, and perhaps we can uh, do this again sometime in the future when uh, there has been more progress in uh, one of the free private cities that that are being built right now or maybe new ones will appear Uh, i don't know Um, just to to wrap this up uh, can you tell uh, some people who are interested where to find you and how to reach out
1: Yes, my handle is Fred fredlidvite pretty much everywhere. Uh, my work at Tipolis, you can just take a look at tipolis.com. That's this private company that's trying to establish new free private cities. And we actually have some pretty interesting leads, which may turn into full-fledged projects by the end of the year or by next year. Uh, whenever we have some news, we will you know, let you guys know. So just... Keep following the, the page, and for more content on, you know, free private cities, the theory, the model, how would it work, the you know, the basic questions answered, just go to freeprivatecities.com.
0: And that's it for this episode. I hope you liked the conversation and the format. And until next time.